Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we've been looking at the life of Joseph over the past few weeks. And one of the things that we've seen, there's two big things we've seen. He's been betrayed three times. So he was betrayed by his brothers at the very beginning with the coat of many colors thrown into a, pr- to a pit. He was betrayed by Potiphar's wife who accused him of rape and he got sent to prison. And then as we saw <coughs> last week, he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer and the cupbearer forgot about him. So he was betrayed a third time and had to wait two whole years in prison Finally, he gets out, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and then humbly he goes before Pharaoh and gives him the idea of how to store up grain during the seven years of plenty so that during the seven years of famine they would be taken care of. And so Pharaoh elevates Joseph to prime minister, the second most powerful man in the world. So it started when Joseph was 17 years old. And now we get to chapter 42. And there's a cast of characters that's kind of been out of the scene for a while, and that would be his brothers and his dad, who were back in the land of Canaan. So in chapter 42, this famine has forced Jacob and his family to go to Egypt to get grain. And so what we're going to see tonight in chapters 42 and 43 is a painful reunion between Joseph and his brothers. Now, before I give you the main point for tonight, do you think that the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery have some buried guilt that they're dealing with? So here's the point of chapter 42 tonight. God may make us painfully aware of our buried guilt as his gracious means to lead us to repentance and reconciliation. What is needed in this family is repentance and reconciliation, and sometimes God uses guilt as a way to bring about that transformation so as we look at chapter 42 it is desi- it is divided into four scenes so let's look at scene one i call it a dysfunctional family in trouble scene one a dysfunctional family in trouble so genesis chapter 42 verses one through five when jacob learned that there was grain for sale in egypt he said to his sons why do you look at one another He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, let's, let's just think about the time frame of our story here. Okay, Joseph was 17 years old when we 
first started the life of Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery. Then after 13 years, he's now at the age of 30, he was released from prisoner as the prime minister of Egypt. And then there were seven years of plenty, and now there are seven years of famine. So Joseph is probably around maybe 37, 38 years old. So really, how long has it been since he's seen his brothers? Let's do the math. 37 minus 17. For those of you that are good at math, how long is that? Roughly, let's just say roughly, it's been 20 years. 20 years since those brothers left Joseph for dead and lied about it to their dad, Jacob. So let's ask the question, after 20 years, we pick up 20 years later, here's the question, has anything changed in the life of these brothers after 20 years? Well, you've got to read between the lines, because here's the problem. It's a time of famine, and these grown men are still living with their dad. And in verse 1, Jacob says, why are you guys looking at each other, doing nothing? Go down and be men and get us some grain. Basically, what Jacob is saying is, sons, get it together. Stop standing around and being lazy and actually do something and go down to Egypt. I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down there and get some grain. And so they're like, okay, we'll do that. But notice what happens. Jacob sends ten... Of the sons, who does he leave back? He leaves back Benjamin. Who is Benjamin? Benjamin is actually the youngest son. He's Joseph's little brother, and he is also from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. So let's ask the question, 20 years ago, what happened... The last time Jacob sent his favorite son to check on his other brothers. Joseph, yeah, he didn't come back. Joseph was left for dead. And they returned and told their father a bald-faced lie. So Jacob's like, I'm not letting that happen again. I'm not going to send Benjamin with you guys. He's my youngest. It's already happened to me with Joseph. I'm not going to let it. Nobody's going to take this precious Benjamin away from me. So he's going to send the brothers, the ten brothers, down to Egypt. So let's ask the question, is there still favoritism in the family? Is there still priority over the youngest son? How do you think the older sons are feeling at this time? Dad always plays favorites with Rachel's youngest, Joseph and Benjamin. So it's still a dysfunctional family. Jacob is still showing favoritism. The, 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 the brothers are kind of sitting around not taking action. So it's crisis time. They're, they need food. And so they get sent down to all places, Egypt. All right, let's see scene number two. Joseph tests his brothers. So this is verses 6 through 17 of Genesis 42. Now Joseph was governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. 
they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Okay. What's the first thing the brothers do when they come to, to Joseph? They bow down before him. Thus, the dream comes true in a way, although Jacob is not there bowing down before him. But why don't the brothers recognize Joseph? Well, it's been 20 years. He was 17. He was a teenager. But remember what we said last week? What had happened to Joseph? He'd been Egyptianized. His hair had been shaved. He's got Egyptian clothing. He speaks Egyptian. For all outward appearances, he appears to be Egyptian. He's not this 17-year-old upstart with a coat of many colors. And so Joseph accuses them of being spies, which at first may sound a little strange. Why is Joseph putting his brothers to the test? Why is he speaking harshly to them? Why is he doing this? Why can't he just forgive them and say, hey guys, it's me, it's Joseph? Well, the, the answer is, it's not in God's timing yet. The brothers have to undergo a trial to understand their guilt against Joseph. But I want you to notice what the brothers say about themselves. Notice what their protest is. You see that in verse 10. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. We're honest men. Is that true? Are you honest men? Now, obviously, they're honest about not being spies. Why would they come and spy out the land as ten brothers? Okay, that, that's not James Bond, war, uh, you know, spycraft there. Ten guys coming in to spy. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. They're probably bringing an entourage of camels and donkeys, and, and, and so it's not like they're sneaking up. But in verse 13, the brothers volunteer more information to this man that they supposedly don't know. What do they admit? What do they say there in verse 13? We, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is to stay with our father, and one is no more. What do they acknowledge? We had a brother, and he's no more. Kind of vague. Now, what's the irony? That brother standing right in front of them, and they don't know it's him, and he's the most powerful man in the world at this time. The last time they saw their brother, he was a 17-year-old little, little guy with the, the coat of many colors. Now, here comes the test. Here comes the test of what Joseph's doing. Verse 15. Joseph, what does he do here? 
By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes back. You've got to bring back Benjamin, who is Joseph's actual blood brother from the same mother, Rachel. Now, this would be unsettling, wouldn't it, to the brothers? Because what, what, is, what has Jacob made known, their dad? He didn't send Benjamin down. Benjamin's the favorite. I'm not going to dare send Benjamin down there. We know what happened last time I sent my favorite son down there. He got killed. So what is Joseph doing? He's testing the character of these brothers to see if anything's changed after 20 years. Do they still have hatred? Do they still show sibling rivalry? So he puts him in prison for how many days? Three days. Now, that's kind of an act of mercy because he knows that they need to get grain for the rest of the family, so he doesn't imprison them for a month. It's, it's three days. So the question is, would these honest men act in honesty? Would these men come face to face with the guilt that they had perpetrated 20 years ago? Would they repent? So, that's the question. All right, let's... Look at scene three, the next scene. A powerful confession of guilt. Verses 18 through 25. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in a sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Would these honest men act in honesty? Joseph is standing before them as an honest man who fears God. Yet we never see anywhere in the story that these brothers fear God. Do they ever even talk about God? So Joseph gives them an opportunity for one of them to remain in custody. He gives them a chance. Which, which brother's going to step up to the plate? Who's going to volunteer to stay back in jail while the rest of them go? Nobody does it. But verse 21 is telling. How does verse 21 start? They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty considering our brother. How long has it taken for them to confess their guilt? 20 years. 
20 years, and they finally say what? We are guilty. And then they basically say, we deserve to be punished for our sin because we treated him badly, harshly, and, and, and we're reaping what we sow. We're getting the just desserts of what we've done. Notice what um, Reuben said there in verse 22. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. We're being punished 20 years later for the sin we committed and we buried and we never told anybody. And we've been guilty for it all these years. We're reaping what we sow. There's a New Testament principle Paul says in Galatians 6, 7-8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Somehow, God is working to awaken the conscience of these men to admit their guilt. Now let's talk about Reuben for a moment. Who is Reuben? What's the birth order of Reuben? He's the firstborn. And he speaks up, and in this chapter he kind of looks like a fool. He doesn't really act like a firstborn son. Basically in verse 22, it's kind of like, I told you so. <laughs> I told you so, guys. I mean, I, I, we shouldn't have sinned. We shouldn't have done this to Joseph, but you wouldn't listen to me. Now, notice what's happening. Joseph turns aside and weeps. He can't control himself. He's weeping. He hears everything they're saying. Why? He still speaks Hebrew. He still knows what they're saying. They don't think he knows what they're saying. They think he's Egyptian, and he's got an interpreter there to make it look like he doesn't know what they're saying. So he's crying because he learned that Reuben tried to stop them, but they didn't listen. And so he's weeping. Now you may ask, why is Joseph acting harsh to them, and then he's turning around and weeping? You really see the character of Joseph here. He really loves his brothers. He wants them to repent. He wants them to come clean. He doesn't want to punish them, but he wants them to own up to their sin. So he's weeping because he really loves them, and he, he's finally reunited with them, but it's not quite time to reveal himself listen to what the proverb says proverbs 28 13 and 14 whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy blessed always fears the lord but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity so joseph gave them an opportunity for one of the brothers to stand up and say hey i'll volunteer to stay back he said one of you stay back in prison the rest of you go back to your homeland bring the youngest brother back as a test nobody stands up and does that so what does joseph do he picks simeon he says simeon you're you're the one that's staying back now why simeon he was leah's second son okay so simeon was number son number two from leah Benjamin was Rachel's second son. So jo Joseph's kind of playing a game on them to see if they would notice. W would it freak them out? Would they catch it? I don't know. But what does Joseph do? Notice how he sends them back. He fills their bags with grain and replaces their money. This is a great act of mercy. 
But the brothers may have been a little suspicious. Why such grace from this man? Why is he being nice to us? Why is he being good? Well, there's another reason for doing this. Joseph could not accuse them of being spies, nor could he accuse them, uh, but, but he could now accuse them of being thieves to, to show that they were, to, to, to prove if they were honest or dishonest. So let's see what happens next. A dysfunctional family in trouble again. Scene 4, 26 through 38. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Okay, so what does Joseph do? He sends them back with their money to make it look like they stole so that he could accuse them of being thieves. So they get to the hotel for the night or the lodging place. They take out their bags and they're like, oh no, all this money's still there. What's, you know, somehow our, we're going to be accused of, of stealing. What's going on here? They, they panic. And so here's the thing. Guilty people sometimes have trouble accepting God's goodness. I mean, yeah, Joseph was setting them up, but Joseph was being good to them. He, he, he basically gave them free food. They didn't have to pay for it. It was God's kindness. But they could not accept the kindness from Joseph because they were guilty in how they treated Joseph. It's, it's like what Paul says in Romans 2.4. Sometimes we need to be reminded do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? These brothers need to go through this. They need to understand their guilt. They need to go through this process. They need to have God work in their life. They need to own up to their own sin after 20 years. What happens when you don't confess sin? 
and it builds up over time. Psalm 32, 3-5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Would these men keep silent, or would they confess their sin? Notice they confessed it to one another. They said, we're guilty, but who have they not told yet? Jacob, their dad. They haven't come clean to him. But notice, this is the first time the brothers mention God's name. They're beginning to repent. They're beginning to fear God. This repentance is starting to happen. Its transformation is is slow, but it's going to happen. Now, in verses 29 through 34, basically, they just recount to Jacob what had happened when they were down there in Egypt. And Jacob is terrified when they open their knapsacks. Why? Because he has to face the unthinkable. What, what do they say? You've got to go back. Joseph says, you've got to bring your youngest son back, Benjamin. And what does Jacob say? Over my dead body. This is not going to happen to me again. I am not sending my youngest son, my favorite son, down to a place for him never to come back again, just like what happened to Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin the way I lost Joseph. Does Jacob trust his sons? There's still some distrust here. There's still some dysfunctionality. So here, here's the issue. Jacob is upset because he hears the news This prime minister wants me to send my youngest son back. That's not happening. And you guys look like you've stole the money. We are in big trouble. And he can't trust the other brothers. And so Reuben comes up with a great idea, right? Hey, I'll take Benjamin back. Just kill your two two grandsons. Kill my two sons. Well, what good is that going to do? I mean, (laughs) that's kind of a stupid thing to think about. I want you to notice... Joseph's harsh words to the other brothers in verse 38. What does he say in verse 38? My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. Did you hear how he said that? He's the only one left, guys. What are the other ten brothers thinking? Well, do we not count? Are we not your sons too? Obviously, Joseph was your favorite, and now Benjamin's your favorite. It comes full circle again with these brothers. They have to hear it from their dad again. These jealous brothers realize what they have known all along. Benjamin is Jacob's favorite. He's the only son that counted. So here's the test. All the way back when Joseph was 17, they hated Joseph. They were jealous of Joseph. Would it come full circle? Would the brothers hate Benjamin? Would they resent Benjamin? Would they mistreat Benjamin because of the favoritism? So, here's the test for these guilt-ridden brothers whose consciences have been awakened to their sin. 
Here's the test. What are they going to do? Number one test. Will they return the money to Joseph? But more importantly, will they return Benjamin to their father? Will these honest men this time act honestly and not sell Benjamin into slavery the way they did Joseph? So that's number one is are they going to return the money to show that they truly are honest men? That Joseph kind of set that up so they would have to. But more importantly, are they going to treat Benjamin honestly? Or will these brothers act in treachery and deceit like they did the first time with Joseph? Will they betray Benjamin and lie to their father again? So ask the question, how does this chapter end? Does it, is, is it a Brady Bunch ending where it all ties together and everything is nice and tidy? Now, there's unresolved conflict. There's a cliffhanger. We're starting to see the brothers begin to confess guilt, but Jacob doesn't quite trust them. So what, what's happening here? It's <laughs> kind of the way I've described it. Jacob's having a pity party. You're not taking my son down there. He's my favorite son. He's the only one left. Reuben's acting like a fool. Hey, just kill my two sons, and I'll make sure that Benjamin gets brought back. Nobody has emerged as a true leader. And Joseph has still not been reconciled with his family. So there's dysfunctionality. There's a cliffhanger. There's not true repentance yet. Jacob still distrusts his sons. And we still have to ask the question, will these quote-unquote honest men act honestly this time with Benjamin, or will they act in treachery the way they did with Joseph when he was 17? So, that leads us now into chapter 42. I'm sorry, chapter 43. We were just in chapter 42. So, let's keep reading because these two chapters go together. Let's read verses 1 through 14. And actually, let me get a drink of water here real quick. Are you guys good? Is there any questions before we move forward? Anything pretty straightforward? All right, let's read verses 1 through 14. Now, the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with us, is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, remember that's Jacob, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to his, Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and I will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
If we had not delayed, we would have now have returned twice. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Who's the firstborn? Reuben. Who's the secondborn? Simeon. Simeon's still in prison down in Egypt. Who emerges as the spokesman for the family stepping up to the plate? Judah. We'll talk about that later, but Judah is the fourthborn. He becomes the spokesman for the family. Reuben has lost all influence. If you go back in Genesis, Reuben was the one who committed incest. He's the one who wants to sacrifice his two sons. He's the one that kind of said, I told you so, to his brothers. Judah is reminding his dad that this man is in charge. Joseph, he didn't know it was Joseph, is in charge and and he demanded that we bring Benjamin back. And then Joseph's a little distraught. He's like, why did you tell him you had other brothers? Why couldn't you have kept your mouth shut? Why, why, are you, why are you giving away family secrets? You should have just gone in and bought the grain. Why, why, are you, why are you divulging information about our family? And what does Judah say? Well, the guy asked. He asked if our father was still alive and if we had any other siblings. And so we felt like we had to answer these questions. And then in verse 9, Judah pledges that he would actually take care of Benjamin. And he would be in the one to, to basically be the, be the leader. And he basically says, if I don't bring Benjamin back safely, then it'll all be on me. So what does Jacob do? Jacob has wrestled with God before and lost. So what is he doing now? I can't fight God's sovereignty. If this is what needs to happen, this is what needs to happen. I don't like it. I don't want my son Benjamin to go down there, but we need food. And this guy's powerful, and you guys have appeared like you've stolen money, so we've got to make this right. And if it has to be this, I've resigned myself to it. But notice verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May God Almighty. One thing I want you to notice is, and it's a small detail, but maybe you noticed it. He's now called Israel in chapter 43 as opposed to Jacob. Remember God changed his name to Israel? So Jacob and Israel is the same man. Why all of a sudden is Moses the author switching to calling him Israel? What is God beginning to do? You're seeing the beginnings of the nation of Israel right here with Jacob and his 12 sons. It's just a little side note. It's just interesting. 
Moses switches from Jacob to calling him Israel. So Jacob might not like the sovereignty of God, but he yields to the sovereignty of God because he knows it doesn't do any good to fight against it. So in Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in the deeps. And then Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, what does, jo- what does Jacob say to the, the sons? Take double the money. I really want you guys to come across as honest men, so take back what you had originally, but double it, so, and then take some gifts. We've we got to sweet talk this man that you keep talking about. You've you got to go up there, and you've got to show that you're honest men. We need to get Simeon back, and I want Benjamin back, so we need to do everything in our power to make sure that this thing goes off smoothly. So let's move into scene two. Let's pick up in verse 15. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, is it because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys? So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we had brought it again with us, and we brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet when he had given their donkeys fodder, They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. So the brothers are afraid. Okay, they're not immediately taken to jail. Where are they taken? To Joseph's house. They they don't know there's going to be a huge feast. They think, oh my goodness, he's taking us to his house. Is he going to like beat us up and put us in prison to make us slaves? Uh, Is he going to speak roughly to us again? What's going to happen? And they basically plead with the steward, listen, we don't know what happened. We left here, we got to the hotel, we opened our luggage, there was the money that we had there, we don't know who put it there, we're bringing it back, we're bringing back more, we really don't know what's happened. We don't want to be in prison, we want to be in the good graces of this man. But notice verse 23, what does he say? Chill out, dudes, it's all right. it's going to be okay, relax. And then they release Simeon. That's good. He's out of jail. And they are now to wash their hands and prepare for this great feast. Still kind of weird to the brothers. This is kind of strange. We're, this is, I don't quite understand what's happening here, but we're invited to this feast. We're going to sit down and we're going to eat, and I guess it's okay. I really don't. I mean, he let Simeon out, so and, and Benjamin's here. Nothing's happened to him yet, so... Let's see what happens. So let's keep moving through 
the third scene. 26 through 34. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Okay, so when Joseph enters, what happens? They bow down again. This dream that he had as a 17-year-old is coming true. His brothers are bowing down before him. And then something interesting happens. What does Joseph ask? Is your dad still alive i want to know if my dad jacob's still alive and they say yes he is then he sees benjamin his little brother his blood brother his true brother and he can't control himself in verse 30 what does it say there verse 30 it says then joseph hurried out for his compassions grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there he, he lost it at this point. He can't control the compassion he feels in seeing his younger brother, so he has to remove himself, go to his bedroom, and start breaking down crying because this is the first time he's seen Benjamin in all these years, his little brother, the one he was probably closest to. They both had the same mother. So he washes his face, gets his act together, comes out, and... There's kind of a seating issue here because the Egyptians don't sit with the unclean Hebrews. So Joseph and the Egyptians sit at this table over here, and then the brothers sit there. But I want you to notice, how are they seated? Did you catch it? Look at verse 33. How would Joseph know this? How would this man know this? They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. How in the world would the steward know to place them in birth order, oldest to youngest? That would be kind of unsettling to these brothers, like, wait a minute. How, how did they know which orders we were? There's 10 of us. There's, there's actually now 11 of us. How, how, did, how did he know? There's still some tension. They're looking at each other in amazement like, what's going on here? How did he know to put us in birth order? Well, there's a reason Joseph's doing this. It's not just an incidental little hint or detail in the narrative. This is a symbolic 
and visual way to recreate the tension that has always been felt in this family with the sibling rivalry among the brothers. We're going to put you in birth order just, just to see how you do. See if it comes to light at this feast. And so let's ask the question, who's at the very end of the table? Benjamin. And what does Benjamin get? Five times. Verse 34 says Benjamin gets five times as much food as the other brothers. Now, why does Joseph do that? Is he just being generous to Benjamin? No, he's setting it up. He's trying to test the brothers to see if they're going to be jealous again. <laughs> what they say to themselves, not again. How come Benji always gets preferential treatment? It's bad enough that our dad gives him preferential treatment, but here this man is in Egypt giving him preferential treatment again. He's the lowest born. He's the last born. He's the twelfth son, and he's at the end of the table, and he gets five times as more. We are upset about this. We are jealous about this. This is burning us up. We can't stand Benjamin. He's always given preferential treatment. So the question is, would the jealousy arise again in these brothers? Would they truly be repentant? Remember, they confessed their, their guilt. They confessed that they'd sinned against Joseph. Would they bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as Matthew 3, 8 says? So, had these brothers changed? Was there a true transformation? Or would they still be jealous? Now, at this point... The text does not tell us how the chapter ends. Instead, they're enjoying a wonderful meal together and having a great time. Notice verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs, and they drank, and they were merry with him. They're just having a good time at the dinner table as brothers. When was the last time these brothers were eating a meal with Joseph? More than 20 years earlier, go back and read Genesis 37. Let's go back to Genesis 37, 24 and 25. When was the last time they had a meal together? Genesis 37, 24. And they took him, that's Joseph, and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. They sat down to eat. The last time they had a meal together was when they ripped the coat of many colors off of Joseph and threw him in the pit and they were so cold-hearted they sat down to eat while he is in distress down in the pit. Now, after all these years, this is the second time they're eating together. But notice, all 12 brothers are together, eating, being merry. But they don't know that Joseph is Joseph. Joseph knows who everything is going on, but they don't. So here's the beautiful irony. At this point, at the end of the chapter, all the brothers are reunited, reunited. They're having a wonderful meal together. Instead of Joseph sitting in the pit crying for release, He's now the one in charge of everything. 
He's the one that's not the slave. He is the second most powerful man in Egypt. But again, is this meal a test to see how they're going to act? Would Benjamin's preferential treatment rise up that sibling rivalry in these men again? Okay. That's a straightforward reading of chapter 43. But I want to go back and show you three surprises that would maybe have caught the original hearers of this story off guard. And they are surprises for us in understanding God's grace in the gospel. Let's remember something about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is more than just be like Joseph, don't be like Reuben, be like Judah. It's not morality tales. They all point to the gospel. They point to Jesus and our need for a Savior. It doesn't come right out and explicitly teach it, but in types and shadows, it brings forth gospel implications. So let's look at these three surprises. Surprise number one. God grants outrageous mercy to the desperately needy. God grants mercy to the desperately needy. Now, what's going on in the story? What's the whole setup for the story? It's a famine. Don't forget that. Jacob's family is desperate. They are hungry. They're dysfunctional. They're in dire straits. What's their only source of hope? This man in Egypt who gives people food. This quasi-savior figure that's down in Egypt that can be the salvation of their lives because he's going to provide grain to them. So they are at Joseph's mercy. Does Joseph have every right the moment he sees his brothers to destroy them? Can he say, I'm not giving you guys grain. You betrayed me over 20 years ago and you're getting nothing. I'm going to take revenge upon you now. I'm going to imprison you all. What does he do? What is Jacob's desire back in verse 14? Go back and read it again. We, we kind of skipped over it up on purpose, but we're going to go back and read it again. What does verse 14 say? Got to get back to the right chapter here. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. El Shaddai. God Almighty. May God grant you mercy before the man. Do you want to know an interesting detail? This is the very first time the word mercy appears in the Bible. What is Jacob's prayer? Maybe the sovereign God of the universe, El Shaddai, will show you mercy through this man, Joseph. Instead of getting punishment, brothers, boys, you will receive mercy. May God Almighty show you mercy. So let me ask you a question. Are you like Jacob's family? Are we not needy, desperately wicked, guilty, dysfunctional, and spiritually hungry? Yes. 
Before we had a relationship with Christ, we were spiritually in a famine. We were spiritually dead. We were desperate. And just like Joseph had every right to not give them mercy and to punish the brothers, the question for us is, does not God have every right to punish us and send us to hell? Is God obligated to show us mercy? Just a side note, if God is obligated to show you mercy, it's no longer mercy. It's something God has to give. And by mercy, by its very definition, it's not something God has to give. Romans chapter 9, 15 through 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we cannot force God to show us mercy. He shows us mercy because he desires to show us mercy. He's not obligated to give us that mercy. He gives it to us because he loves us and he has the sovereign right to do that. So what is Jacob's prayer in verse 14? May El Shaddai, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Let's ask the question, is Jacob's prayer answered? Does Jacob get his prayer answered? Does Joseph, the man, extend mercy to the brothers? Well, look at verse 29. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Instead of showing anger and punishment and revenge, Joseph shows grace to the undeserving. Do these brothers deserve anything from Joseph the way they treated him? No. Joseph is the one who's in charge all the way. He's the second most powerful man in the world. He has every right to put them in prison, to refuse them grain, to do whatever he wants. He's not obligated to do anything, but what he does is he shows mercy and grace to the brothers. Jacob's prayer is answered. And it's the same way with God. God shows us mercy. Now, I ask the question, why is it a surprise? Are you surprised that God shows mercy? Or do you just expect it because that's who God is? We should always be in amazed and in awe that God shows us mercy. Don't get comfortable with the fact that if you start to think I, God owes me it, you're kind of in a dangerous place at that point because God doesn't owe us that mercy, but he chooses to give it to us. So surprise number one is God gives mercy when we don't deserve it. Jacob's prayer was answered. May God be merciful. And Joseph says, may God show mercy to you. Now, here's surprise number two. God grants overwhelming peace to the extremely guilty. Are these brothers guilty? Yes. They've committed a crime against their brother Joseph. And they don't know it's Joseph, but do they have every right to fear the prime minister? They, they, they're coming, bowing down, not knowing what's happening to them. So they're guilty, and sometimes guilt produces fear. Fear of punishment, fear of judgment. Guilty people have every right to fear judgment 
But notice what happens in verse 23. What does the steward, what does the servant say to them in verse 23? He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Now, did you notice something very interesting? What does the steward say? This is an Egyptian. What does the Egyptian say? Why did they get peace? Notice, notice how he says it. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Now, how did the steward know that? How did, you have a pagan Egyptian attributing this to God, Yahweh. How would he know that? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but here's my guess. Joseph's relationship with God has rubbed off on his servant. The servant understands who this God is that this family serves. But what does he say to these men? Peace be to you. What's our relationship to God before we have salvation? We're not at peace. We're at war. And Christ reconciled us to the Father through His death on the cross. And what happens when we trust Christ for salvation? We are no longer guilty for our sins. But as Paul would say in Romans 5, 1-2, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, why is this a surprise? Because the brothers don't deserve peace. The brothers don't deserve mercy. They get mercy, they get peace, they get a feast when really what they should have deserved is to get punished for their sin. And in the same way, what do we deserve? We deserve to get punished for our sin. We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. But what does God give us? God gives us peace. God gives us grace. God is not obligated to give it to us, but he gives it to us because he loves us. But here's the third surprise, and it's the most exciting in this entire passage of Scripture. And and we went by it briefly, but I want to show you it. Judah offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin to bear eternal guilt. Remember what Reuben said? Hey, I'll offer my two sons as a sacrifice for Benjamin, but he wouldn't provide it himself. You can have my, I'll kill my two sons, but Reuben said, I'm not going to die. My two sons can. All right, so Reuben, the firstborn son, is kind of a jerk. What about the second two sons? Simeon and Levi, they're ruthless killers. They've lost their place in their father's eyes. But now the true leader of Israel will emerge. Judah, the fourthborn son. And he makes the powerful choice to offer himself as a substitute to bear guilt Forever. I want you to notice verse 9. I'm going to kind of show it to you in the Hebrew text. 
I will pledge, I will, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. That's strong language. What's he saying? He offers himself. I will take the place. Judah doesn't say, hey, my, you can have my sons. I will be the pledge. I will take the place of Benjamin. I will be the one that stands in the gap. And if I don't bring Benjamin back safely, I will bear the blame for how long? Forever. In the original language, where it says bear the blame, it literally reads in the original Hebrew, let me be a sin offering. Let me be a curse. Let me bear the sin. Now let me ask you a question. What does that sound like? Someone bearing the sin of another in the place. That's substitutionary atonement language. In other words, if Judah did not bring Benjamin back safely to Jacob, he would incur the judgment of his dad. And here's the thing that's interesting about Judah. Did anybody force him? Did his dad force him? No, Judah takes this tremendous responsibility voluntarily. I'll do it. I'm going to willingly lay down my life for Benjamin. Nobody's forcing me to do it. I'm making the solemn pledge. I will bear the guilt. Now, you know this, but who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who is the ultimate king who descended from Judah? Jesus. Jesus is the king from the tribe of Judah who voluntarily, like Judah, laid down his life for guilty sinners as a substitute to bear our guilt and shame and punishment. Jesus, like Judah, said, I'll be the sin offering. I'll, I'll, I'll die in the place of Benjamin. I'll take the curse. I'll stand in the, in the, in the stead. I'll be the substitute. So Jesus was a substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died in our place. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus took the curse. Jesus died in the place of the guilty. And here's the plot twist. How does the book of Revelation describe Jesus? Revelation 5, 5-6. This is when nobody's able to open up the scroll and the elders are weeping. And um, I mean, John is weeping because he sees nobody there to open up the scroll of history. And so one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb 
standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the lion slash lamb. So here's the question. Is Jesus a lion? Yes. Is Jesus a lamb? Yes. Which one is it? Yes. Welcome to the world of Revelation where you have mixed metaphors. Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah who grants us mercy, who grants us peace, and who took the blame and died in our place. So what you see here in this chapter is a picture of Jesus in what Judah does. Judah says, I'm voluntarily stepping up to the bat. I'm going to die in the place of my brother if I don't fulfill the promise to bring him back. I will incur the debt. I will bear the wrath. In the same way Jesus said, I'm voluntarily going to lay down my life in the place of sinners that don't deserve it. The wrath will come upon me. I will die in their place. I will take the curse so that you You don't have to take it. And what you get when you trust in Jesus is peace, mercy, grace. And remember, the greatest surprise in all of this is that we don't deserve it, but God chooses to give it. We say it often, or I say it often. We are hopeless, helpless, and hell-bound. And our sin is way too Tremendous, but Jesus' love and mercy is far greater than our sin. So trust in the lion from the tribe of Judah who gave his life for us, died in our place, so that we would have mercy, grace, and peace and not experience punishment. The brothers could have been thrown in jail or killed, but our punishment that we deserve is hell for eternity, but Christ saved us from that through his death on the cross. All right, let's pray, and then you guys have about 20 minutes to, to visit or go hang out in the foyer. So, Father, thank you for this time that we've had tonight to look at your word. It is amazing these details we find out in the life of Joseph that just point to you, Jesus, and how it all ties into Judah and God's sovereignty and mercy and grace. And, Lord, as we, we think about these these um, events in history help us not to lose the forest for the trees but just see that we are the ones that do not deserve mercy we are the ones that do not deserve peace but jesus you give those to us because you voluntarily laid down your life for us and so jesus we are so thankful for your sacrifice we're so thankful for your love thankful for your grace thankful for your mercy thank you for being the lion of the tribe of judah that you're our defender you're our protector you're our lord you're our king and you're also our savior so we want to worship you And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.